This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. and welcome to Scholarly, a podcast series from ATS Scholar and the ATS section on medical education. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. Today we sit down with Dr. Andy Lux and Burton Lee. Dr. Lux is a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine and is the program director of the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the University of Washington. And Dr. Lee is professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and directs the fellow medical uh, mechanical ventilation courses at the University of Pittsburgh and is the founder of a multi-institutional consortium on mechanical ventilation for a number of fellowships along the East Coast. My name is Stephanie Maximus and I'm a medical educator in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and I'm a media team member of the editorial board for ATS Scholar. Thank you both for being here today and for our listeners as we all seek to learn a little bit more about scaling up education for non-intensivists, particularly in this COVID pandemic era. Um, So to start off, I'd love to give you both an opportunity to describe the neat educational products you both have been creating and working on recently. Um, So uh, Dr. Lee, could you maybe first tell us a little bit about the videos that you and um, Dr. Megan Acho have been working on and sort of the origins of thinking about about this project? Sure, Uh, so we've had the privilege of uh, producing uh, some videos for non-intensivists, so they're called ventilators for non-intensivists. And I think how we got started is uh, for me, I've had a number of former students or residents uh, that have you know rotated through the ICU, uh, who reached out in the context of the pandemic, uh, because they realized they are now getting roped into the ICU uh, when they have not necessarily been doing this on a daily basis. Um, and then we've also had a group of cardiologists, uh, you know, both at Pitt and some of my former residents or fellows, uh, who wanted to find some educational material. Uh, and then finally, I think from the global health work that I've done, you know, I had a number of people from Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East who were reaching out about similar kind of resources. And then at the same time, I think, uh, you know, Megan Acho, uh, she's been helping to coordinate some of the uh, UPMC's response in trying to help out in the heart hit, uh, hospitals in New York, where the context basically is our senior fellows and, and attendings who are doing telemedicine rounds uh, at these hospitals in New York, and then realized that most of the people that they were um, trying to supervise through telemedicine were you know, non-intensivists, and they were uh, you know, often just uh, um, like residents in, in internal medicine who are doing their best to take care of these, uh, of, these, uh, of these people. So we found this to be the, you know, like the ripe opportunity to try to develop some educational material for non- non-intensivists to help uh, you know, in, this, in this fight against the pandemic. And Dr. Lux, can you tell us a little bit about um, your Just in Time and Now What series? Yeah, so that was actually part of a larger kind of educational program that we created for the non-critical care trained people who were expected to um, move into the critical care environment to help care for patients with COVID-19. The way it kind of transpired is at some point, I think the incident command leadership reached out to my division head, Rob Glenny, saying, hey, we think we may need to surge up with our uh, 
know, capacity for providing care in the ICUs. Do you have anyone who might be able to put something together? And my division head contacted uh, myself and Trish Critic and said, do you think you guys could take this on? And I said, sure, yeah, we're happy to do that. And we had a couple of little communications with the people from incident command, not a lot of details were passed along. And then as I got off service and finally had time to sit and focus on it, I sent off an email saying, hey, and this was like on a Thursday, I think. Uh, just out of curiosity, what's the time frame that we're looking at for which you need these materials? And the email reply comes back, eh, we're thinking Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything just got rapidly accelerated. So I quickly sent out an email to a cohort of our clinician educator fellows, as well as some faculty that I knew could rally quickly and get some uh, materials uh, together. And we had a very quick uh, Zoom meeting uh, that was organized, much like everyone is doing for a lot of other purposes now, and quickly devised our plan for what we wanted to do. And we coalesced around the idea of having a series of core modules on kind of basic topics in critical care medicine, like the approach to the patient with respiratory failure, the approach to the patient with shock, basics of mechanical ventilation, um, interpreting chest radiographs in the ICU, sedation practices, and a couple of other things. Um, and so we created, a, the, the core modules were created largely using the resources from SCCM's uh, foundations and critical care support, because they had a lot of pre-existing lectures on these things. And then we created some supplemental resources by looking for good things on the web, uh, review articles, et cetera, and then a couple of resources that we had on our own. So I created the chest radiograph module, for example, paring down something I previously had. And then the second component was gonna be these just-in-time learning uh, documents. Um, we figured there were gonna be a whole series of scenarios that people would encounter in the intensive care unit, such as my patient's hypotensive, or I just put on, on the ventilator, now I'm being asked to come up with ventilator settings or adjust the vent rate. What do we do? So we quickly brainstormed like what would be the 20 or 25 highest yield topics and then we set about creating these one-page documents to provide guidance on how to handle each of those things so workflow diagrams quick little differentials and importantly highlighting like when when do you need to call for help like when are you getting way beyond what you should be handling and need to seek the help of an expert and then the third component we've we created was what we call critical care office hours. We figured people might be reviewing these materials and then coming up with questions and they needed some resource for getting those answered. So we set aside time every day at between four and five to have a Zoom you know, meeting availability where one of the people from our team, as well as some other people who pitched in would be available on Zoom to answer questions. Um, I'd say that last part bombed. <laughs> Uh, in the sense that we were available every day for about three, four weeks, and I don't think we ever had a single person call in. But I think that was related more to the rollout of the materials, because once we got everything together by the time and within the time frame that they wanted and made and sent it over to the people in incident command and it got posted on the COVID website, I think they didn't subsequently advertise that information more broadly across the institution. And so people were, weren't really aware that that, that asked, you know, the, of what tools were available. And it was only as people were starting to get mobilized in a surge, you know, capacity that they were starting to hear about this a little bit more. So I don't think people really knew about that last component, even though we included it in the core document that went out with the materials. And 
you asked, you know, ahead of this, did, did what we end up look like what we are hoping to build? And I would say there's kind of two parts to that answer. I think if you look at what we decided in that initial Zoom meeting of what we were going to get together, we hit the target of what we wanted to do. I think if I had had two or three months to put something like this together, it would have looked fundamentally different. I mean, one of my core you know, principles in my teaching is I never like to teach using other people's materials. I always want to create my own and craft it the way I think you need to explain something. And I didn't feel great relying on the SCCM modules, but they were the thing that we had available at that time. There was no way we were going to be able to get together, you know, extensive PowerPoints or great videos like, like Burton and his group put together. Uh, and I think, you know, looking back in retrospect at the just-in-time learning documents, and we got a good sense of this as we went through the review process when we submitted some of these for publication in ATS Scholar, we had, you know, mistakes, we had some gaps in the way we explained things, and I think had we had more time, a lot of that stuff would have shaken out and we would have had, you know, probably a better product than we did. And I think that was one of the fortunate aspects of the review process when we eventually submitted it for publication is that the documents became better uh, as a result of the input that we got in the review process. Hmm. Yeah, you made some really great points in terms of um, the importance of peer review, even for educational materials. Um, I think as we're seeing, as we're proceeding through the pandemic, we're seeing a whole lot of different variety of level of research or, you know, research loosely used as a term coming out. But I appreciate your point about uh, even the educational work that is based on physiologic tenants that we know, have known for decades, um, still need to be uh, reviewed carefully for, for small errors, but also just clarity in their explanation. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Bert, do you have anything, um, any other thoughts uh, as it relates to peer review? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, like, like in, a, in, as far as our videos, uh, essentially, they are stuff that, that we've been teaching to students or residents for a number of years. And, and Steph, you're, you're actually very much part of that process, of course. And, uh, and so all of us have been teaching different um, aspects of this. The, the difference, though, is, you know, we're trying to distill it down from what's typically 45 minutes to an hour to 10 minutes and ATS scholars are very strict about that time limit. So trying to distill it down and yet make it understandable and, and user-friendly. And you know, we have a lot of ambitious goals for somebody who is not necessarily gonna do any preparatory reading or you know, they're not gonna pour over this stuff necessarily, but, but they want some quick and easy uh, helpful guide. So it, it really was challenging. And so, so, so that's where I think um, uh, peer review process is very helpful because sometimes we are used to thinking a certain way and this is the way we've been teaching for years and so I sort of approached it like oh this should be very easy I can just you know just dump basically what we do normally and just make a video out of it but in, I think in practice it was very helpful to get outside people to critique it and to make suggestions to say actually that doesn't make sense what you said there, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and these are things that we just assume make sense to everybody. Um, and some of that is because of the way we we're explaining it originally. Some of it is because of our institutional bias. You know, we have uh, certain things that we do in, within our own institution that makes sense to everybody in the institution, but not necessarily to everybody else. So I think, yeah, it's, it's been very helpful and actually kind of a learning experience to put our education material to 
in the uh, peer review process. Um, and you both sort of alluded to the sense of urgency um, associated with the, the educational materials that you're producing. Um, how does that pair along with um, this other idea of teaching to mastery, which is we oftentimes how we think about um, how to teach, especially like a more advanced group of learners, like how have you balanced your usual uh, desire to teach to mastery with the sense of urgency and um, the constraints being put on you from ex externally? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I think we were approaching it, and I certainly had in the back of my mind as we were organizing the materials together, is I think the concept of mastery that we would focus on with the fellows, for example, really had to go by the wayside because for this group of people that were potentially going to be moved into the critical care environment or even just the acute care setting from very different settings that they're used to working in, the idea of getting up to ma mastery on mechanical ventilation was way beyond what we think, thought would be achievable. I mean, we needed to get these people just going on the basics, like how does volume assist control work on the ventilator? How do you adjust the ventilator rate when the blood gas uh, comes back? And you know, we struggled a little bit. Like I remember like in our just-in-time learning documents, we had a document on auto peep and we had a document on breath stacking. And we had a lot of debate as a group, like, should we even include these things? Is this gonna be relevant for someone who's just coming in the ICU? And some of them, like myself argued, yeah, we need something on auto peep. This is a, something that can get patients into a lot of trouble on the ventilator and they need to at least be able to recognize when it's going on. And others thought, come on, they barely even know how volume assist control works. And I think overall, we tried to move, you know, rather from focusing on mastery to focusing much more on core stuff. And even when we kind of touched on the more advanced topics like auto peep and breath stacking, we really hit it at a much more superficial level, emphasizing, hey, you need to call for help when these things are going on so other people can give you some assistance. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, would, I would totally agree with that. I think you know, our audience is supposed to be non-intensivist, uh, people who don't have formal training. So clearly our goal in making these videos is not to achieve mastery, uh, so that was never really our intention. Um, and and as I said earlier, it, it is a challenge trying to put in the right amount of material that is helpful. But sometimes having a little knowledge can be dangerous if it's not also you know um, presented with the proper boundaries of of what a non-intensive should do or think about before asking for help. So I think I think I think that really has been a, a challenge for us. Um, as far as what we do for fellows, I think, you know, you know, this video is not really about the fellows, so I don't think it really applies there. But, but what I did find um, interesting is that in the context of the pandemic, I actually found far more interested learners in the ICU when I'm the attending, as opposed to like previous months, where I think it was more of an academic kind of discussion uh, for most people. But now I, I find that the, that the residents are very interested <laughs> In, uh, in learning the same principles that I taught before, but now they are actually really interested. Uh, and then even for the fellows, I think they are much more focused on things. So, so, uh, so like for example, I think in our, in our institution for, for whatever reason, we don't tend to use a lot of APRV. Um, uh, and so when we, you know, when we taught that at, the, uh, at one of our um, ventilator courses for our fellows, um, you, know, you might recall stuff that, you know, that we got comments like, well, this seems like a lot of effort for uh, something that we don't really use very much, you know, which might be a fair criticism. 
But now, because they're reading that people are using APRP for some of these COVID patients, now I'm getting people emailing me to say, hey, do you remember that lecture that we had uh, by Eric Reiner? Do you have those slides still? So, you know, so, so like our perspective and framework is changing, which I think is very healthy. Um, and so, so I think, I think the pandemic in some strange ways has really, uh, you know, spurred on curiosity, you know, you know, you know, maybe that, that sense of urgency is also kind of healthy because it kind of forces us to learn things that maybe was difficult to learn or to talk about, but now people are much more interested. Yeah, now it's, people find that it's actually relevant. Right. <laughs> um, I would have hoped that they would have thought that beforehand. There was a fair <laughs> number of cases of sepsis and shock <laughs> in the years leading up to the major pandemic, but. Right, right. we always had ARDS in our IC. <laughs> so, right. I don't know, but. Whatever I guess, whatever it takes to get people to <laughs> to invest. Yeah. Although I wish we didn't need a pandemic for that. <laughs> and it sounds like both of you um, have emphasized the importance of recognizing when it's time to ask for help, like when it when you've reached the limits of um, of your understanding. How how do you think it's best to frame that uh, when you're trying to push out a like bite sized piece of information and physicians are being called upon to take care of extraordinarily sick patients and folks with um, the most advanced training may be in short supply. I mean, what we tried to do, at least in the just-in-time learning documents, that was where we really focused on this issue of recognizing when there's a problem that you, is getting beyond what is likely going to be their skill set and their comfort level. So what we tried to do is, in a consistent manner throughout the documents, we just put in bold, call for help. And it was always that phrase. It wasn't, hey, seek your backup, or you may want to call your attending for this, or you know, check with the critical care consultant. It was always just call for help. And quite often it was call for help with an exclamation point, you know, as long as it worked uh, from a grammatical standpoint uh, with the way it was there. But it was that was a consistent thing that appeared in all of the documents uh, so that they kind of knew that this was some this was a situation which they probably need some backup. Yeah, I mean, I think for our our videos, uh, you know, just reflecting on on what was just said. Uh, I mean, I think the, I think I think you guys did a really nice job in your just in time documents about having that very explicitly because call for help is actually quite prominent and it's hard to miss and it's in it's in the key uh, spots. Um, I reflecting on what you have done, I, I would say we could we probably could do a better job on the video. Uh, and then, you know, we have a few more that are, that we're hoping to produce. So we may intentionally incorporate what you've done there actually. So I, I, so I do think that's a great idea. Um, I mean, I, I mean, as far as, you know, like when we're teaching at the bedside, um, I, I think, um, I think one of the concerns that we have is we want to make it digestible and efficient and, and not terribly long because of attention spans and, you know, and long rounds and, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. So, so, so I feel like, you know, we're constantly battling uh, simplifying it because everybody's happier if you simplify it. Um, but, but I also like constantly worry about making it too simple, oversimplifying so that people don't appreciate the dangers of, of, of making it that simple because it's not always that simple, of course. And so, so, so like, for example, when we talk about um, like auto peep, you know, we, we choose to, of course, to elaborate on what, what that is and, and, and what the dangers of auto peep are in, in mechanically ventilated patients uh, for whether you're a student or 
a resident, but we keep that at a certain level, of course. But but I but I, but I, but when we are done with that discussion, um, I always try to make it a point to like say something that makes it very clear that there's a lot more to learn about this than what we just covered. So, for example, I might just say, you know, look at the volume time curve on that patient, and then just have them, you know, think about, you know, what makes that volume time curve have a very sharp slope. Uh, someone who is able to exhale very quickly for somebody who has a very long drawn out curve, somebody who's having a hard time exhaling. Uh, and then, and then, and then by just by pointing that out without necessarily even, you know, getting into it for a long time, um, it, it leaves the door open for the more, more junior learners to realize that there's a lot more to you know, think about. And then of course, for our fellows, we think that's very relevant. And so it does uh, actually draw out further discussions about things like time constants and, um, and things like that that are more uh, more advanced that we don't really try to focus uh, for the sake of students or, or residents, but it kind of leaves that, that, that door open for a wider discussion. Yeah, I can accept that uh, Bert is the master of the cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of a teaching session. So yeah, it's, I think it's important to recognize the, uh, the limitations uh, for, for what we're trying to do in rapidly scaling up uh, ICU education. Um, what feedback have you guys gotten about your materials so far? It's only been a few weeks, although you know there have been versions of these things. And as uh, Andy mentioned, like you guys had some of this stuff originally out there, but now there's a lot more uptake. So I imagine you're hearing a lot more feedback from a variety of different uh, learner groups. Yeah, I mean, I think the feedback we've gotten has been very positive. Although, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's. Uh, I mean, most of the feedback has been people that we know. So they've been friends and, and former colleagues and people like that. So, so I'm not sure how much of that is actually just, you know, being, being socially polite as, to, as opposed to genuinely helping those people who are on the front lines. Uh, so, I, um, so I have to, you know, like be careful. But, uh, but we have heard some feedback from people who are, who are actually using it as, you know, as a user as opposed to somebody who's also an expert in, and, uh, and, and just kind of, kind, of, kind of encouraging us. And I think I think that has been very positive. I think people on the front lines have have you know, you know have written to uh, you know have written to us and 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 have said that it's been very helpful. Yeah, we've gotten I mean little snippets here and there. Like someone texts me a photo from the workroom in one of our ICUs where they saw the packet of just-in-time learning documents sitting on mm -hmm. someone's workstation or. You know, a colleague at a hospital in Boston said, "Oh, our resident, you know, our faculty are using your documents," and there was a lot of like, "Great job," which I'm sure makes Trish shudder because she always kind of can't stand that as the uh, approach to feedback on things. <laughs> the heartwarming thing we got was an email from a, a one of the obstetricians and gynecologists here at UW who went back to New York to volunteer and just sent an unsolicited email saying, "I used the resources and they've been super helpful." You know, in terms of the type of, that feedback is not super is not great for um, helping you really improve the things and think about where you could have done better. I think honestly, it was the peer review process that was the best for that. The the ten documents or so that we put into the peer review process as part of two separate submissions all got much better uh, as a result of the peer review process. Much like 
publications always get better when they go through the peer review process. I mean, I think a lot of us, whenever we get reviews back, the first reaction is, oh, you know, this reviewer, what an idiot. This person doesn't know anything and can't appreciate the genius that is our paper. And then when you sit down and think about it, you're like, huh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, they're probably right. And then you incorporate all the revisions and then you look at the final product and you're like, yeah, that's a lot better than the thing we originally sent in. And so I think that in the end was the most valuable feedback that we got on those uh, documents. You guys, I don't call our particular reviewers idiots, by the way, but just that's the general <laughs> feeling. I think a lot of people have in the back of their mind is just like, what if they can't appreciate, you know, you know, and so, but they really got better as a result of that. We'll make sure the reviewers don't hear this podcast. <laughs> um, are either of you guys thinking about ways to potentially assess these materials or is that, you know, too far removed from where we're at right now? You know, you know, uh, we have talked about it, uh, but I feel like in the context of the current pandemic that, you know, it seems a little bit, uh, you know, luxurious to be able to do at the moment, but, but it would be nice to be able to do that in some fashion, because uh, I think it'll help us improve as educators and to, and to put out a, a, uh, a, a higher eagle product, but, uh, and I'm sure of that, but as to how to go about it, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that either. I, it don't, we don't even know the N, mm -hmm. like the number of people who have accessed the resource and the number of people being redeployed at our institution right now is small and in small little you know chunks here and there and for a short number of days. And I'm not sure we would be able to really get a good you know handle on on what impact it made. You know, certainly you could do a survey and assess comfort with certain things, but I'm not even sure that would have a lot of validity things to think about, things to deploy fellows <laughs> to yeah. think about. <laughs> I mean, I th honestly, I think we were um, really thankful that even that we were able to get two scholarly products out of what we did, given how fast we put it together. That in and of itself, we were totally thankful. So even if we can't, you know, study it more effectively and get some scholarship out of that, I think we're, we're already quite happy with what we were able to achieve in such a short time frame. Yeah, I think that you guys implemented very rapidly um, and hopefully gets disseminated similarly very rapidly. Thinking ahead to coming, you know, weeks, months, potentially, hopefully not, years of, um, of needing higher numbers of uh, folks who can work in critical care environments, what other, um, what other groundwork should we be laying now in terms of sort of scaling up our our ICU human resources and like what should we be focused on teaching our house staff that we maybe weren't as focused on pre-COVID? You mean besides mechanical ventilation? Um, sure, any ICU kind of topics that you think are, you know, we really need to scale up in terms of preparing people. I mean, I think, you know, I am, I've, I've been struck by the fact that, that I think something that everybody knows, which is you know, I think like less than half of the mechanical ventilated patients in the U.S. are actually cared for by trained intensivists. Um, and so I think just, just using that fact alone, uh, the need to train non-intensivists in many of the skills that we have, including mechanical ventilation, but I think point of care ultrasound and, 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 and certain procedural skills, um, you know, I think the need to train people in, in that direction, you know, to me is pretty obvious. 
uh, even without the pandemic. Uh, and at least from what I understand, uh, it sounds like pandemic might be with us for a longer period than we'd like, and it may even revisit us, you know, like in the next season uh, and so forth. So I think the need for this kind of education is probably not going to go away in the next few months. So, um, yeah, so I think whatever, whatever we can do to prepare people uh, better for it. And then, and then in my own view, from the global health context, you know, it's not just the U.S. that's suffering from this, obviously, it's the entire world. And, you know, I think there's a need for, obviously, medical equipment and ventilators in many of these underserved areas around the world. But I think it's also true for the knowledge and the skill set, because you know, not everybody has intensivists in these countries. So, Yeah, I think from my standpoint, I mean, I think the challenge in terms of thinking about what's needed is it, it seems like a shifting target every you know week as to what the needs are going to be and how many patients and whether we're going to need to mobilize people from other arenas or not. I mean, I remember like in Washington, for example, we had the IHME data talking about when the peak cases were going to happen and when it was going to go down. And that was every time it was updated, the numbers were changing. And so the staffing models and the plans for surging are changing and all of a sudden we're not deploying as many people. So with all that stuff that's in flux, I found it really hard to think about well, what should we be preparing as we go forward. Uh, and with what urgency do we need to be doing that? Uh, I mean, I think our backup schedule for attending physicians in our division to cover the COVID units keeps, we get a new one each week. Uh, and then I think on a bigger scale, one of the challenges I've discovered as I was looking for materials and then now following what's been going on the past couple of weeks is there's a ton of duplication going on. It seems like every major professional society and a lot of institutions are all creating resources and some are great, some are less good, but there's just tons of stuff that's getting flooded out there. And then you add in all the stuff that's being bantered and shared around social media platforms and stuff, and there's not a lot of coordination. Mm -hmm. I think the SCCM uh, Foundations and Critical Care Support Program was ideally intended to do that, to provide some coherent set of materials um, for this purpose, but even that doesn't necessarily fit what would work best at a lot of institutions and probably doesn't provide the training in mechanical ventilation that you're going to get from a nice, you know, the video resources that you, know, you guys have put together at your institution. And so I think to some extent, if it would be possible to really coordinate uh, across institutions and get a bunch of heads together to think about what do we really need to teach and then develop a coherent set of resources without a lot of duplicative effort would be great. The question is you could still do that and then there might still be all the duplication that's going on all over the place because people don't know about it, et cetera. And I think that's a real challenge as to how to do that effectively. Yeah, the volume and the flood of material coming out is yeah. astounding. Yeah, can't keep track of it all. So, you know, you know, one thing that uh, that came to mind as you're talking, Andy, is, um, you know, I think your, your your product, which is which is outstanding, and then, and then I think our videos, were kind of born at a time of, a, of an acute need and we didn't necessarily have the luxury of planning this in some thoughtful coordinated fashion. But, uh, but I do wonder whether going forward, uh, there is an opportunity for us to coordinate, you know, I mean, the, the type of material that you, you have produced with, with our videos so that, you know, instead of having two sort of separate discussions, uh, if we had a video that talked about the stuff that you have 
handouts were, but they were coordinated explicitly, you know, we, we could make it even more effective in terms of a learning tool. Um, so, so I do wonder whether there's a, you know, uh, room for further conversation about these kind of collaborations. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, sort of to reinforce the concepts on through different multimedia um, efforts or, you know, depending on what your learner needs in that moment or what they can have access to. Um, and also thinking about a, a thorough but uh, approachable curriculum for non-intensivists, kind of generally speaking. As you mentioned, Andy, the, the STCM uh, did come up with that collection of of materials, but then to think about it now in preparation for what may come in future waves of, the, of this pandemic um, and and for the for the survivors too, right? What do we do with all these people who do survive the ICU? And how are we going to manage their post-ICU complications uh, as well? I think people haven't quite gotten there yet in terms of a conversation, but I think that's what's to come. Um, Lastly, what advice do you guys have for um, other critical care educators who want to do similar things and make similar products and get it out to large audiences um, or uh, their own learners at their own institutions where they may need to scale things up rapidly? You know, like what lesson would you impart to, to people coming up behind you? I mean, I think, I think you have to strike a balance um, in this process. I think in the end, like, like it's critical for all teaching materials that you develop, regardless whether it's for a pandemic response or just teaching as part of the course in the medical school for the students, is you always have to think about who the target audience is um, and pitch the materials accordingly. Like super high level stuff on a particular topic, like talking about all the ins and outs of measuring pulse pressure variation is going to get lost on someone who has never heard of the topic and is just coming into the ICU for the first time in three years. Um, but the flip side is that just because you create a resource and say, hey, this is for family medicine residents or orthopedists who are coming in the ICU for the first time, does not mean that other people at higher levels of learning aren't gonna get a hold of those resources and share them with their teams or the fellows might look, you know, the fellows might look at them for their own learning purposes. And so trying to hit things that would still be relevant for them and not overly simplified um, is tough. I mean, so I think there, that's a difficult balance uh, in this particular uh, case. I mean, clearly when you put something up on your university's outward facing website, anyone and their brother is gonna go uh, download this material and it's not necessarily gonna be restricted to the people in whom you intended its use. Yeah, I, I mean, I would wholeheartedly agree with, uh, with what you just said there, Andy. Um, uh, I guess what I would add um, is slightly more um, um, more for the educator in a like in terms of a maybe overall um, perspective, and that is uh, in my own career, I would say what I thought of as an excellent educational product. Uh, in my 30s is very different from what it became in my 40s and now I'm in my 50s. And so, um, so I think, I think uh, you know, um, just to keep an open mind about what your overall goal is, and it's gonna probably change uh, as you develop professionally uh, in your career. So, so I, guess, I guess number one, there's nothing short of the educator, you know, putting in the sweat and tears 
you know, you know, that is that 10,000 hour rule that we often talk about of actually teaching and teaching and teaching. Uh, but at the same time, maybe having, um, uh, you know, um, a team of people that can provide sort of the, you know, like the bigger picture or the longer term uh, perspectives to, to give feedback and collaborate and go back and forth with. Um, and then I think that team to me is uh, great to have in your own institution but I think actually, actually this would be a great example is I think the stuff that you guys have put out at, uh, at University of Washington is stuff that I, you know, that I, as I was looking at your product is, is like stuff like, you know, that I would say to myself, I wonder why I didn't think of that because <laughs> that's such a brilliant idea and, and, and it's simple. And, and now that you've done it, it's kind of obvious, like, oh, that's great, you know, but, but I didn't think of it. And so I think it's just a, you know, like a testament to, uh, to how much more we could achieve by, having collaborations, uh, you know, across institutions even. So I think this is like a nice forum for, you know, things like ATS uh, and other, you know, other bodies to put uh, people who are doing similar things, but from a different perspective together. And I would say, I think that's gonna be one of the real assets of the section on medical education at the ATS is this whole cohort of people who think all about these issues and are innovating in their educated, education work have the ability to harness a lot of these ideas and get them out there. Yeah, take the best of all the different worlds and, and smash them together. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for, um, for sharing your experience and for, and for coming up with these wonderful resources um, that are so necessary right now. Um, and I think everybody's looking forward to um, more in both of your series and other uh, products that are coming out that will be helpful for non-intensivists as um, as we're all trying to take care of this group of patients and learn together. Um, and thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.